You know, the early church was not um, just focused on gathering people together. That seems like that is a major focus of church today. I have to admit I fall into that a little bit myself. Last week it rained, we were down in, in attendance, not in spirit. This week it was cold and I said, oh no. Thank you for being here because really what the early church focused on and what we really need to be focusing on is gospeled living. We're saved. We're delivered from sin. You all know that verse in the Bible, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And what's the big deal with sin? It's because you fall short of the glory of God. You were created for the glory of God. And so when you sin, you fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus has come, and what we will be celebrating at the end of our time today in the Lord's Supper is not just that He's saved us from our sins so we won't be punished for our sins, but He's about the business, Hebrews says, of bringing many sons to glory. And that's what it's all about. That's gospeled living. And so Christ is concerned with us today, those of you who are here, those of you who are perhaps listening at home, you're watching today. And Christ is concerned with making His bride glorious. I know we're a local church, 501c3 organization. We've got Heritage Baptist Church out on the sign out front. This is a place where people gather together in this building. But I want you to know that Christ loves the church. He loved the church enough to give Himself for her. Why? So that He is bringing the church, not just universal, and not just eternal, but Heritage Baptist Church. And if you're from another Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, your church, and He's creating churches that will display the glory of God by being made a pure bride. And that's what He's about. And so, God's method is people. It's always been people, men and women living together close enough in the nuclear family and then close enough in the family of God. We're not here just to learn how to be happy. We're here to learn how in both of those contexts, the nuclear family, meaning your, your own family, extended family, but also in the family of God, Heritage Baptist Church, you're not here just to learn how to be happy, but how to be holy and how to, to be shining lights in, in a world that desperately needs to see the reality of people who are gospeled people. Now, with that, we have been in the study of the pastoral epistles. If you've not been with us, if you're here with us for the first time, so turn to the book of Titus. We've already gone through Timothy, and now in chronological order, we hit the book of Titus, another young protege of the Apostle Paul. And, and the Apostle Paul loved both these young men, Timothy and Titus. And so we've been walking through this verse by verse to discover what does this look like? How can a family, a nuclear family, how can the family of God at Heritage be formed into a beautiful bride, a bride in all of her splendor, as we saw 
just a second ago. So, we've been talking about family relationships. And we talked first about older men, and then we talked about older women. Those are the only two groups, really, men and women, broken down into gender divisions or age divisions, only two genders, but age divisions of younger and older. And so I'm going to read all of this from verse 1 through verse 8 so we kind of get an overall view. And then today we're going to be talking to younger men. And so don't check out if you don't feel like you fit that category uh, because God will use His Word to speak to anyone in here, man, woman, young, old, and uh, he, he does that often. So that's what we'll be doing today. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Titus. Just read along in, in your Word, uh, your Bible, or in your smart device or whatever else you use. But let the Word dwell richly in you. Paul says for, for, for Titus, here's what he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That has been a theme we've been hammering on because God hammers on it. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise. That word likewise means let's look back and see what he said to the older men. And yeah, we need to be those things too, older ladies. So likewise, and he adds some other things. To be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and train the young women. Train the young women to do what? He gives that specifically. We talked about that this past week. To love their husbands and children. Please go back and listen to that if you missed that. Uh, if you were not here, and, and Paul's word to young women, particularly if you are one. Young women slash wives, because that's essentially who he was speaking to here. Loving their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. There are three purpose statements in this entire passage. Likewise, here we are today in today's passage that we're going to be going through. So likewise, again, as we said before, means look back at everything else that has gone on, and younger men should be doing all of those things. Now, interestingly, Paul tells Titus to tell young men just to do one thing. And young men might think, well, I kind of got to skip over all that other stuff. This, this just explodes with what younger men need more than anything else. Because young men, if you've got this, you'll have all the others. Okay? So he says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And I'm going to add this because Paul tells Titus now what he's to do, but I think since Titus was a younger man, probably in his 30s, maybe close to 40, maybe he was a young man, but these also go with what it means for a young man to be walking as he should. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the, an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Father, I pray that today as we have read your word and we've been reading it all morning long in our ABF hour, 
Uh, we've been reading it as we've been worshiping, uh, worshiping you in song and in the spoken word. We just now read it, and Lord, I pray that now as we seek to lead out the meaning that you have, not just that you had almost 2,000 years ago for a young pastor and for a church desperately in need of all that you say, but also for us. I pray that you would bring this home to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, save people today, and, and to those of us who know you, would you drive as only you can by the power of your Holy Spirit, not by uh, uh, eloquence of a preacher or lack thereof, but Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit and your word, bring forth transformation. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's first of all look at what Paul says. He starts out with likewise. Now, looking back, I said there were three motivations. When we are living a Godward life, it always has an evangelistic purpose. It always has, you might say, a missional purpose. Again, it's not just so that you will be happy in, in the little core relationship that you have by the grace of God. It's always going to be speaking to those inside and outside the church. And so I, I've isolated these three, two negative and one positive. So he's saying to Titus to live this way so that the Word of God will not be reviled. Live this way, men, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, Sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then the third is the positive, so that in everything they may adorn. Does anybody, I, I, that was off the cuff last week uh, when I talked about the word meaning adorn, cosmos. We get our word cosmetic from it, and I kind of made a little quip. Ladies, I hope I didn't offend you in that I like makeup, I mean not for me, uh, I like I like it, not too much, I'm going to get myself in trouble again, you know, like, enough, okay, honey, thank you, adorn, you dress it up, what does that word, what does it mean that you live this kind of life, who's it really for, so that you might make the teaching, the doctrine of God, look good. Now, think with me. You can go out of here today and you can choose to say, well, I just heard a sermon and yeah, it was this or it was that, heard some music and we, we went to church and uh, I, I hope no one came in or will leave with that. But think of what you always think of what it would like if you do these things. Think of what it would be like if you negated everything that we just read. Okay? Here's what it would look like to a watching world. Older men, if you're not sober-minded, if you're not dignified, if you choose not to be self-controlled, if you're not sound in faith, 
or in love or in steadfastness. So what? The Word of God will be reviled and is. Older women, what if you choose not to be reverent in behavior? What if you choose to be slanderers, not only saying false things about people, but true things that are intended to bring hurt or shame? What if you are slaves to much wine? What if you refuse to teach to the younger women what is good and train them? The opponent will not be put to shame. He will be emboldened to bring accusations against the church of Jesus Christ because he's got plenty of evil to say about us. And what if the young women choose not to love their husbands or to love their children? What if they choose not to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands? The Word of God will be reviled. And young men, we haven't even heard the sermon today, but what if you choose not to be self-controlled or to seek to be a model of good works in your teaching, showing integrity and dignity and sound speech? What if you choose not to do those things? Then you will stand condemned. And we will not adorn the doctrine of God. We don't compare ourselves with other churches, but if we choose to just let this be something that the preacher is saying and we don't really take it to heart and ask the Holy Spirit to show us, show us individually where we are on this, then we'll just be another church that the world either ignores or points at and says they say they love God. So young men, let's look at it. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. He uses this word two other times. It's implied the third time. So every one of this, the two genders and the, the two age groups, every one of these is to be well-controlled, self-controlled, self-governed. Now, please hear this because there is, there is something that we as gospeled people and you young men, young women, listen to this. As gospel people, we're not trying to tell you to be good so that God will approve you. That's already been taken care of by Jesus' death on the cross. And if you're in Christ, you're totally approved, but there is something else going on here that you need to strive for, and there needs to be a healthy balance. Let's look at it like this. We are commanded, okay, young men, self-control and all the rest of these kinds of things. We are commanded to work out this part of our salvation. We've already got the justification part, right? Saved by grace through faith alone. But sanctification is also a part of salvation. So that's what Paul is talking about here. Work out the implications of what it means to be saved and to be being saved sanctification with fear and trembling. Dignity is a part of this. I mean, laughter is good in its place, but you've got to have a sobriety, a, a sensibility to the, these kinds of things. For it, now this is a great promise. It is God who works in you. 
the Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Christ, lives in you. The third person of the Trinity. Why? Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And remember this, where does self-control come from? I don't know if I just didn't get it as a young man growing up, and I struggled. Oh, how I struggled as a teenager with self-control in every conceivable area. And I, I had the idea that, okay, I'm a Christian, but i got to have self-control. i got to have just kind of trying to work it up, and it never, it never really worked. I don't, I don't know that I understood. I, I know I didn't understand spirit-filled living. See, the fruit of the Spirit is something that the Spirit produces in you. And if you're being filled with the Spirit, then... It, it'll, it'll grow up and down, but there will be progress, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and, say it with me, self-control. It is a fruit of the Spirit. So what is self-control and why is it so important let me just give you a little definition. Self-control, the ability to control yourself. <laughs> See, you're ready to write, weren't you? No, it's the ability to control. What, what are you made up of, okay? You're made up of, of what you think, your mind. You're made up of what you feel, your emotions. You're made up of what you choose to do, your will. And self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, which let's go back to working out your salvation with fear and trembling, not only does God work it in your life, you've got to work with Him as a believer. Because self-control is important. It's controlling yourself, your emotions, your impulses. Does anybody else just every once in a while get an impulse to do something or to buy something or to say something or to let your mind be filled? With, do you ever get those impulses? Self-control means that you're gaining that control over those things because one thing as a believer, now if you're not a believer, you don't give a rip. You just build these fantasies, and then they become actions, and then they become behaviors, and then they become lifestyles. Developing self-control is a war. You've got resources that unbelievers don't have, and they can go to seminars, and they can get therapy, they can get counseling. They just can't... They, they may trade their lack of self-control for another area of lack of self-control, but they will never gain the self-control that God wants you to have. So here is why it's so important. He who rules his spirit, self-control, is better and mightier than he who takes a city. One guy can take a city. Who was the strongest man in the Bible? 
And who was one of the weakest men in the Bible at the same time? Samson. He could take a city. He did at the end of his life. He killed a thousand men at one time with a bone, jawbone of a dead donkey. He was a mighty man, but he, could, he had no self-control. His impulses drove him and ultimately brought him into bondage. A great, great, great story, though. He repented. Guys, repentance is always something. Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. Don't presume upon God's grace. But he did repent. And he finally won the, the victory for the children of Israel. And he is a, a good example of young men. Hey, I'm just going to ask you, do young men need self-control? They nodded the most, okay? They re- you, you know you do. And I'll show you that you do. Ask anybody who sells automobile insurance for new drivers. If you've got a 16-year-old young lady who's beginning to drive, and if you've got a 16-year-old young man who's getting ready to drive, guess who costs more? The young man. Why? Okay, guys, I know every one of you thinks you're a better driver than women. You You do? Well, most of you. And yet, statistically, young men, young drivers get into more accidents than young women. Why? Why? They're they're more impulsive. They throw tantrums while they're driving. They think they're invincible. They think they're bulletproof. Road rage. Now, this is an interesting statistic. There is no difference between men and women. But to show that the Bible is really accurate, there is a difference in age groups. Road rage, what's road rage? No, biblically, what's road rage? It's a lack of self-control. And it's broken down by ages. Road rage is more likely to happen in the age group of 25 to 39. I saw in my study a book referenced, really an interesting book. I I don't know that I'm going to buy it and read it. It's called Over the Edge, Death in the Grand Canyon. And this couple has gotten together, and they statistically have gone back to discover the number of people who have been killed in the Grand Canyon over the years. Do you know they're still finding skeletons of someone who died? How How many people would you say have died in the Grand Canyon over the years? A lot, yeah. 900 that they can verify. 11 a year. Do you know where most of those happen? Interesting. In the air. Airplane, helicopter rides, next time you're at the Grand Canyon, you're tempted. Think twice. Most of the deaths happen there. But among the other deaths of people falling off the edge, over the edge, guess what group is most likely to do that? Young men. 
Why? Risk takers. Again, impulsive. Again, it won't happen to me. I'm invincible. I'm bulletproof. Young husbands, listen to me. Look at this. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I didn't say that. God did. You can try to get around it. I've tried to get around it, but, but that's why it's so important that we develop self-control, young men. Now, I'm beyond that, but I'm still working on the self-control thing by the power of God and by the Word of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, asking the Holy Spirit to fill me when I'm, I have those impulses. By the way, they, they do get, get fewer with age as you work on it, but they're still there. And this is why you need this so much. You know, last week I, I talked about, and we read just a few moments ago, young wives are to submit to their young husbands. Do you know why so many young wives have difficulty submitting to young husbands? Because those young husbands lack self-control in so many different areas. By the way, you might ask this, to whom do young men submit? I, young ladies, I know sometimes you feel unfaired against. Well, I got to submit to him. Who does he got to submit to? And the standard answer is, well, we know we all have to submit to God, but not so quick. Do you realize, young men, and this is such an important part of who we are as a church and the, the body of Christ, and we're not where we need to be, but we're growing in this. In First Peter, and then we'll come back, swing around again to Proverbs. This is key. You younger men, likewise, be subject to the elders. One of the, one of the marks of wisdom and self-control is if you are making a decision or you, you are doing something that you have a question about, talk to one of the elders. Talk to an elder, an elder man who, who, who is walking in the Spirit, whom you admire or, or you trust at least, or go talk to the elders in your church. And it's just amazing that guys, young guys, will make the most important decisions in life without ever consulting an older man. And it's just so simple. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then add that little thing in there from the Proverbs, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. I, I'm not getting on to anybody specifically, but I'm just telling you that this is what I see over and over again, and it's one of the things that we need to grow in. There is a computer program called Covenant Eyes. Anybody ever heard of that? Based off of Job 31.1, where Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I may not gaze upon a young virgin. Covenant eyes is a, it is a 
good thing to have for accountability. It's not a guarantee. People can work around it. But I I was impressed that our new Speaker of the House, this was publicized. I'll come back to this in a minute. But our new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, okay, is apparently, from all I can tell, a born-again believer. Somebody went back and found out that he had been doing covenant eyes with his son. An accountability program so that each of them would be involved in helping the other to maintain spiritual purity. I thought, wow. We don't hang our hopes on politicians, folks, but I'm encouraged that this new Speaker of the House is at least willing to say, I, I do that because I know for my son, we, we, we need that both together. I wonder what would have happened, and if it would have been different, now we know God's providence is perfect, if it would have been different in the days of Esau. If he had taken the advice that the Bible gives over and over again of young men, I urge you to be self-controlled. I urge you to to, to go to your elders before you make a decision that is life-altering. So the writer of the Hebrews actually tells us this example. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, not set apart. That's what that word unholy means, like Esau. What was Esau's problem? It was the sin of convenience. The sin of just in a moment, his feelings, what he desired in the moment, took precedence over the long-term vision of holiness. And in an instant of need, his stomach was growling, and you could insert whatever you want to in that other kinds of lusts. His stomach was growling, and so for a single meal, my goodness, he could have at least chosen steak. For a bowl of soup, basically, he sold his birthright. And in this case, there was no going back. Because we're told that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. I don't know how that fits into your theology, but that's in the New Testament. For he found no chance to repent, although he sought it with tears. What in the world do we mean by that? Don't we believe that a person can repent right up to the moment of his death? If you believe the story of the two thieves on the cross, yes then we believe that is absolutely true. But when you live a life with wrong priorities, that's going to lead into impulsive decision-making. No thought of long-term consequences. And sometimes it's irreversible. I remember as a kid, probably about five, riding a bicycle, and by our house was this huge hill. Now, going back and looking at it, it probably wasn't anything as big as what I thought at five. 
I was a new bike rider. I had a bike. And that hill looked like a lot of fun to me. And I got up at the top and I said, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this hill. And I started going. About the first 10 feet, so far so good. It was a lot of fun. There came a point at which I wanted to stop. I couldn't. There was no, there, there was no stopping. There was no reversing. And I tried to put on, you know, back then we didn't have the brakes here. You had that, and I tried to put that on, and it didn't work, and the front wheel started going like this, and I ended up on the pavement. That could be a little bit like what Esau went through, and maybe what some of you have gone through, and maybe what some of you are going through right now. Long-term consequences. I've shared with you a couple of times that Jan and I have been doing funeral planning. We've bought our, our cemetery plots. We're talking about those kinds of things. And, but then things happen and we just, you know, you put it aside because life happens. And then a good friend and a co-worker like David Holmes, all, all of a sudden, no, he was keeping an appointment. He was keeping an appointment that he had. Oh, by the way, each one of you has this appointment. A lot of times we, we don't look at the long term. So we choose to live in the, in the present. And we don't look at the, at the long term. And so, a week ago yesterday, Saturday, I get a call from David. He's in the hospital. <laughs> and for those of you who know David, you were sitting right there, Sandra. Well, Marty, I, I don't think I'm going to be at the mission team meeting tomorrow. I said, well, David, why? He said, well, I'm in the hospital. You're in the hospital? Why? Well, I had an event. Uh, yeah, I'd say, yeah, you know, David is just so laid back about everything that he's been through. And so he told me he had a stint put in, and he was calling me to tell me he wouldn't be at the mission team meeting that was last Sunday. Wow. Fast forward to Tuesday, I get word. Call Sandra, we talk. And I said, Sandra, is it true? She said, Yeah. I was in the other room. I heard him make noise. He was in his recliner. And the way you put it, Sandra, I loved it. He just got up out of his recliner spiritually. And he stepped into glory. Actually, the Bible says he was carried by angels, if, if you go by the Lazarus account. And so I, we talked. We talked for a good while, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I think I told you, we, Jan and I were just talking about it that day, and we need to get busy on, 
planning our funeral. And you, you know I've said some things about the funeral service and all the rest of that. And we all have desires about when we go and how we are going to go that we may not have the, the, the liberty of uh, choosing. In a way, I'd kind of like to have all my family around me, all right, if I still have my mind at that point. Not for my sake, but for theirs. Because the Bible tells me this, and, and this, is, this is not a funeral sermon. I had these notes written on Tuesday before I talked with Sandra later. And I wondered, should I share those? Yeah, I should share those because we're talking about not making the sh living for the short term, but making sure the decisions we make are for the long term. Whether you live another 80 years or not, plan for it. And so one of the reasons I want my kids around me and my grandkids and whoever else in my family, because I want to be able to say to them, guys, no matter what you do, be ready. Be ready. For when your appointment comes, don't presume upon grace. And if I've died quickly like David did, which some of you can understand, maybe a kind of a preference. I'm thinking about, Jan knows I've got some weird ideas about this, having a plaque made for my casket, at least at the graveside or whatever, that says, be ready. Could I say that to you today, young men, older men, younger women? older women. Be ready. Well, okay, preacher, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're kind of pulling the emotional strings here a little bit, talking about death. It's just a reality. Why be ready for something that's going to happen next week and not be ready for something that's coming you don't know when, but it is coming. Well, pastor, you say I've got it all planned out. I'm going to be like the thief on the cross. I'm going to live my life the way I want to, and I'm going to be like that. Well, I would simply ask, which thief? One repented. The other didn't. For him, it was too late. The bike was out of control. And one was carried by the angels into the presence of Abraham, in the presence of the Lord. And the other, like Lazarus in that story in Luke 16, found himself in the flames. This is just true. This is just reality. See what I'm saying to you, young men, the eternal stakes are simply too high for you to ignore. 
And the best thing you can do, isn't this a sermon about self-control? Yes. The best thing you can do is be prepared for then so that you can back up and say, now, in the sanctification process, I'm depending upon God's grace and I want to not presume upon it. You see, there's a saying, what you will be, check this out. I'm not sure about, about all of this, but I think there's a grain of truth. What you will be in all probability depends on what you are right now, unless you repent. Be transformed while you still can. And see, the whole thing about Christian self control, it's not just focusing on what you don't do, it's focusing upon what you do. And it's all tied together. Let's look on at the second phrase. That first one was where I really wanted to put, put my weight down on that. Let's run through these and, and then wrap it up with the Lord's Supper. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. This is a stark contrast to what he talks about, about the false teachers. See, their false teaching led to bad living. That's what happens. So don't be, guard your doctrine, guard your heart. Don't be like the false teachers who didn't believe correctly so their works revealed it. Be rather like what is described later on in chapter 2. God in Christ our Savior gave Himself for us to redeem us, look at this, from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, and sometimes we forget this, zealous for good works. Not because good works approve you before God. That came because of the cross of Jesus Christ. You're totally approved. But it's for, I'll put it like this. When my children were little, they were always my children. But what I was wanting them to do was to live for my smile and not my frown. Anything they did, nothing they could do would make them unbecome my children, although I was tempted upon occasion. But that's the way we are with our Father. Nothing we can do. We can't get out of this salvation. But don't you want His smile? And there's a great, great sense that you will do in all respects to be a model of good works. I can't think of a verse that better says it than this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Self-control is very important, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind from this book. Without self-control, you're not going to do that. You'll mean well, but you'll never get in. You'll never have a quiet time to put this. You'll never read. You'll never study. But you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that the, the test, by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And this lifestyle pleases God. Let's move on. Now, he's talking to Titus, but this, uh, this applies to, to, to young men. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be 
condemned. This is part of your lived out good works. Be a young man of integrity. Be a young man of purity. Not corrupted by false doctrine. And just have that sense of dignity in all that you do in handling God's Word. Don't make light of the Bible. You know, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy humor. I tell bad dad jokes and bad granddad jokes. Ask my kids and my grandkids. I've got a pile of really bad ones. I love that. I love to laugh. But about this Word, we must be serious. And I have to decide... On each Sunday, am I going to be a clown or a prophet? I think you'll agree a little bit of appropriate humor is okay as long as you don't go over the pale, beyond the pale, and it becomes me being a stand-up comedian. And then run from hypocrisy. Let me just say this. A couple of years ago, the president of our Southern Baptist Convention was caught in a scandal. Some call it Sermon Gate. Now, he wasn't just writing sermons, borrowing illustrations, and not attributing those illustrations or whatever. He was taking an entire sermon word for word, including the illustrations that he applied to himself, just like that story of of me riding down the hill. I can show you on Olive Street where that happened. That wasn't taken from somebody else's, but he was doing this, taking someone else's life experience and making it his own in his sermons. And it wasn't just one. It was hundreds. Now, you know the really sad thing about it? He was confronted about it. Rather than admitting it and rather than his church, his elders lovingly confronting him and him repenting, they covered it up. They just removed the sermons from the church's website. And denominational leaders praised him as a man of integrity. Newsweek didn't. Other publications out there didn't. He was a laughingstock. That's a, that's a quote. A shame on all Southern Baptists as cheats and liars, just like the rest of the world. You know, a lot of people out there, if, if young men, if we're not living self-controlled, and by the way, that doesn't mean perfect, it just, it, repentance is a part of that. We blow it, we repent, Lord, fill me with your spirit, now let's move on. And that'll happen over and over again, sometimes in the same day, right? But if we don't get it right and we just live and we cover up and all the rest of that, just like this happened in our own denomination... It's never been taken care of. And there are people out there that are wondering, I wonder what else they are hiding. For sure, not adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. So that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This is just living that life above reproach. I mentioned Mike Johnson a minute ago, coveted eyes. How many of you believe that's a good idea? Wow, I think it was great. People outside the church did not. They absolutely gave scathing reviews 
of what Mike Johnson did. In fact, they twisted it and turned it. And what I'm saying is if you live a life like this, self-controlled, above reproach, don't think that the world is going to give you accolades. Chances are they're going to do just like they did with Mike Johnson. I read something that said, how awful a father and son sharing pornography on their websites. A blatant lie, twisting of the truth to defame Christians, to ultimately defame Christianity in this book in the name of God. So don't think you're going to be patted on the back by a world that is at enmity with God. Lost people are not neutral, but don't be afraid of standing for the truth. This is the last verse I want to share. I've shared this several times with you. Second Timothy, this has been one of my life verses. God has, don't be afraid to be self-controlled and to live a life that the world may not understand, but God will. Because He has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind, sound judgment, self-control.